All right, Isaiah chapter 7 this evening. If you haven't journeyed there yet, we continue our study through Isaiah's prophecy together. And Isaiah chapter 7 picks up skipping over one of the kings uh, of the nation of Judah, as we mentioned last time, that what we have in Isaiah's prophecy certainly is not all given to us in a chronological order. And last time when we were together, we were looking at events that took place we saw in chapter 6 during the time of the reign of King Uzziah and right after he died. And now as we come to chapter 7, the very next chapter, you notice it tells us it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham. Now, consecutively, Jotham was the next king in Judah after Uzziah, but uh, here Isaiah in his prophecy jumps right over the reign of Jotham and now gives to us some events that took place during his prophetic ministry under the time of the reign of Ahaz. It tells us, uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 1, that these things now came to pass in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, so that's who was reigning in the northern kingdom at this time. Again, remember, we're at the time now of the divided kingdom. You always have a king in the north, the ten northern tribes, which made up Israel, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which made up the southern kingdom, often referred to as Judah. And predominantly, we are given insight, uh, as Isaiah prophesied, foremost during the time of the, the reign of the southern kingdom, which lasted longer than the northern kingdom. But at this time, notice there is still a king reigning in the northern part of Israel. And now it seems this confederation happens with the king of the north in Israel, uh, as well as Rezin, the king of Syria. And it says, they went up to Jerusalem, verse 1, to make war against it, but they could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. In other words, this is the message. They're deployed now up in Ephraim. So his heart, that's the heart of the king, the heart of Ahaz, the king of Judah at this time, his heart and the heart of all his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So the idea there is great fear, just like the wind would strongly blow and would shake the branches and the leaves on the trees and would cause those things to be rattling and shaking. That's the picture here. Their hearts are gripped with great fear. Now, if you're interested, by way of just a reference point, 2 Kings chapter 16, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 28, give to us sort of the historical backdrop of the events that took place under the reign, verse 1, of King Ahaz. And again, in the northern kingdom, they never had a good or a godly king. In the southern kingdom, they kind of went back and forth. They had some good and godly kings, and they also unfortunately had some evil and wicked kings. And King Uzziah, the last king we just looked at in chapter 6, he was one of the good kings he was one of the godly and moral kings, brought spiritual reform and great stability and prosperity to the nation of Judah. That was Ahaz's grandfather. Jotham's father was a godly king as well. But unfortunately now Ahaz, who was the grandson of King Uzziah, he was certainly one of the more wicked kings in the time of the southern kingdom. 
Uh, he did many immoral things. He was very godless man. In fact, he wasn't just godless himself personally. He was quite honestly, we might say, somewhat anti-God. He was someone who did things to actually cease temple worship, to almost close down the temple, if you would. The Bible tells us he even went to the point of sacrificing his own children on the fires of the altar, committing child sacrifice, not just in the nation, but with his own children as well. And this, of course, led to the people under his reign coming under the judgment of the Lord. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19, regarding the reign of Ahaz, it says, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had continually been unfaithful to the Lord. Now, that's a bad description of a national leader there, whereas the result of his reign and his personal life and his administrative uh, capacities as he led the nation, it says the Lord brought the nation low because of this leader, King Ahaz, for he encouraged moral decline in the nation. Imagine that. I know nothing new under the sun, right? Imagine an, a national leader utilizing their role and their policies and their administration and their efforts to actually not allow moral decline, but to actually facilitate, or it says, encourage moral decline. I mean, certainly we have seen that in some of the presidents that we have had in our own nation here, where clearly they didn't just allow moral decline in the society, they actually did things to encourage moral decline, like lighting up the White House with the rainbow colors to, in a sense, celebrate LGBTQ and so on and so forth, and, and being proud of those things, and actually encouraging moral decline and unhealthy sexual lifestyles among the nation. And again, uh, just we, we see this from time to time, and this was the case with Ahaz. So you get the idea of what Ahaz's life was like, as well as the contribution. It was causing the nation to be brought low because of these things. And we know in Second Chronicles chapter 28 that one of the things God was doing was, in a sense, pulling back his hedge of protection and preservation. And in connection to that, we see that they became vulnerable to enemy attacks. The king of Syria came against them at this time, and he even formed a confederation with the king of the north, uh, Pekah, says, the son of Ramalia. And they went up to Jerusalem, to the capital city now of the southern nation, to make war against it, but they had not yet prevailed against it at this time. Now, Historically, we know at the time that Isaiah is stating these things, 2 Chronicles 28 again tells us at that time that the nation of Judah itself had already been, we might say, decimated. They had already suffered 120,000 soldiers in casualties of war that have already died at this point. Many people have already been taken captive, thousands of people. And where they're at now is they come up against the capital city of Jerusalem to make war against it. Really, where they're at now is all that is left to conquer is the capital city. So God has already allowed Judah to suffer great consequences for their sin. Again, imagine, you know, think of those numbers, 120,000 casualties of war. That's a lot of people who die in battle. 
120,000 have already died. Thousands have already been taken away from Judah in forms of captivity. And the idea here is now they are encroaching on the capital city. They're, they're going up against it. And if they prevail against taking and conquering the capital city of Jerusalem, that would be the breaking of the back of the southern kingdom. That would be the fall of the southern kingdom. So they are in a very genuinely scary circumstance. And this is a real threat of destruction, and really not just destruction of the city, but destruction of a nation. The whole nation was about to fall. If it'd be like, again, if uh, the United States of America suffered great military casualties from some warfare, and, and, and now the enemy invaders were surrounding Washington, D.C., and we're ready to go in and to conquer, again, our, you know, our, our White House and our Capitol building and things of this nature, the threat that that would be because we would realize sort of that's the last stand there. And, and this is why there's such genuine fear now gripping the heart of King Ahaz because it appears like all is about to be lost and it very clearly looks like ruin is on the horizon. That's why it says there in verse 2 that when word came that their forces were deployed, verse 2 says that the heart of the king as well as all the people were moved as the trees of the wood when the wind blows. So the idea is the people's hearts are being swayed with incredible fear now. They are shaking literally in their boots. They're terrified that everything is about to be lost. Now it's at this point with that context historically that verse 3 tells us that then the Lord said to Isaiah, again, this is God's spokesman at the time. He's the one who speaks forth God's messages. God would give him a word to speak on his behalf prophetically, putting his word in his mouth. And he told Isaiah saying, go out now to meet Ahaz. You and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. So this territory where he tells him to go meet the king was where there was at least a water source flowing into the city of Jerusalem, which was absolutely critical if you were surrounded and they were laying siege to your city. If you at least had still a water source coming in, that was absolutely essential to your survival. Because if you didn't have a source of water or a source of food, then in a matter of time, they would just starve you out from the outside. And then as sickness and weakness set in, they could much easily just come over the walls and conquer you. So he tells Isaiah, now I want you to go out and I want you to meet King Ahaz. I like how he tells him, I want you to bring your son with you. And his son, literally his name means a remnant shall return, indicating a word of hope. And so he says, I want you to take your son and I want you to go speak to the king. And I like this, the father's in a sense bringing his son along for this moment of ministry here and go and say to him, verse four, here's the word of the Lord through the prophet to the king and the people, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. Now that's referring to Pekah as well as the king of Assyria, resin at this time. He calls them, God refers to them. They look so powerful and so intimidating. And God says, to me, they look like two stubs, uh, uh, like smoking firebrands that are about to basically go extinct. 
from God's perspective. And he says, these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of the Lord, uh, of re- fierce anger, excuse me, of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia because of Syria, Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you. And they're saying, let us go up to Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves. That is to break open the barrier to get, get through and set our own king over them, this puppet king, Tebal, uh, which we don't really know who that is, but it was someone that when they conquered Jerusalem, they planned to set on the throne to kind of function as their puppet king there. Verse 7, thus saith the Lord, here's God's word to what they're terrified about is about to happen and is very intimidating. Thus saith the Lord, here's his word, why they shouldn't be afraid. God says, verse 7, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. Now again, what he's referring to there is the northern kingdom will be broken, it will be conquered, we know not by Syria, but by the Assyrians, who are the up-and-coming empire at this time, And here, the word of the Lord is that Isaiah was to bring a message to King Ahaz and to the people that no matter how threatening the situation looked, though it was legitimately a terrifying circumstance, I mean, they were literally, with rightful reason, utterly terrified that this was their demise. It was their ruin. It was curtains for them. It looked like there was no way that they were going to get out of this and survive it, and so they are gripped with fear, and despite how it appeared circumstantially, this threatening situation indicating total loss and devastation, God says to them, do not be afraid, be quiet, don't fret, don't fear, and then verse 7, his point is, it's not going to come to pass. It's not going to stand. The very thing that looks like is going to transpire, God says, I'm telling you, no matter how it looks, it's not going to come to pass because it's not my will for it to come to pass. I'm not going to allow Judah to be completely conquered. And that was exactly true. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and took them away captive. And Judah did suffer great loss and casualty but God preserved them and protected them historically, and they lasted as a nation, the southern kingdom, much, much longer. Ultimately, they're not conquered until the Babylonians. Ultimately, many years down the road would come in and conquer them as a people. Now, the reason that the Lord is so strongly exhorting through Isaiah here that the people would trust him and believe him that it would not come to pass, that thing they were afraid of, that it wasn't going to stand and hold up, was because Ahaz at this point also, we know historically, had sought to take matters into his own hands. And when this threat of war came against him and he had already been somewhat defeated, what he did to try and solve the problem on his own in his flesh through human striving is he went and made a political alliance with the Assyrians to basically come to his aid and to help him to prevail in battle to, in a sense, hold off the Syrians and the nation of Israel in the north. And so recognizing the up-and-coming power of the Assyrians, he thought, you know what? This is a time to be strategic. I've got a problem. I've got a brain. 
I'll just solve my own problem. I'll just think it through logically. I'll use resources that I have at my disposal, and I've got a problem. I will connive my way out of it. I will pay my way out of it. I will do whatever it takes, and I'll make some alliances, and I'll make some arrangements. And he's established this, and he is now relying at this point upon the Assyrians, if you would, the arm of flesh, his own plan of problem solving, and he's relying upon the Assyrians to come and rescue him and to get him out of a situation. And the Lord here, knowing what he has prearranged and doing this and that he is greatly afraid, God was promising, look, despite how threatening the appearance of the current situation looks, I'm telling you, it's not even going to come to pass. So you can go break your commitment with the Assyrians. You should have never made an alliance with them because you didn't need to fix the problem yourself. That's my job as God. I'm your king, and I'll come to your rescue. I'll fix your situation. You'd never needed to go connive and make your own little fleshly carnal endeavor to try and solve the problem yourself. And what God is wanting Ahaz to do is to humble himself and to go to the Assyrians and say, you know what? Uh, really don't need your help. Uh, that was a mistake. We should have trusted the Lord. We should have humbled ourselves and cried out to him and, and to break that alliance and to trust God's promise and God's word. And that's why God says here, look, this isn't going to come to pass. In fact, God says within 65 years, the Syrians and the nation of Israel, th they're both going to be gone. They won't even be on the map anymore because the Assyrians who you're trying to get to help you, they're going to come conquer everybody. And so God here is saying, I want you to trust me. Don't be afraid. Believe me when I tell you that no matter how it looks, it's not going to happen. You don't have to be fearful. And you know, there may be times in our lives where maybe situations arise and circumstances unfold and we find ourselves facing something and everything looks like circumstantially and, and, and situationally, it looks like this is it this is going to be my ruin, or this is going to be the absolute worst outcome, and it looks like everything is going down the tubes, and it is terrifying, and we are certain it is going to come to pass, and God may step in and say, no matter how it looks, it's not going to happen because I'm going to intervene. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to work in that situation, and I'm going to assure you that it will not transpire and knowing all things, at times, sometimes God asks us to trust him in those ways. And this is what he was telling his people here to do. Verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, he goes on to say, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. And look what the Lord says in his message here. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. So the Lord says, I don't want you to fear I don't want you to continue to press forward in reliance upon other things. God's saying, I want you to trust me. I'm asking you to put confidence in me, to rely upon me. I've given you my word. I've given you my promise. But then God says, now it is your responsibility on your end to believe me for this, to wait upon me, to trust me, to give me a chance to show I have the power to perform my word and notice the caution here from the word of the Lord that if he did not trust the Lord and wait and let God work it out, he would stumble in the process. It says, if you will not believe, then surely you shall not be 
established. In other words, it was a test to see if he would believe the Lord, if he would trust the Lord to work on his behalf without continuing to strive and having a backup plan, having a carnal, I'll fix it just in case God doesn't follow through for me in his faithfulness plan that he was to trust the Lord. And he says, you will not be established. And to be established means to be settled or safe or secure. So here he is trying to arrange his own security. And God says, if you don't trust me, you're not going to be secure. I'm not going to let you succeed in your own fleshly efforts. God says, the only way this is going to come to pass is if you break your alliance and your plan with Assyria and you let me show my faithfulness and my power to you. And sometimes I think the Lord, you know, puts us in that place where he is prompting our heart and perhaps the word of the Lord to us sometimes is very similar that despite what's going on, the Lord says, look, trust me in this. I know things you don't know. And I know what you're thinking and I know what you're fretting and I know how it looks. And the Lord says, but trust me, I, I, I am assuring you of this. I'm giving you my promise. And, but then the Lord says to us, but if you won't believe, if you don't believe, your unbelief is going to rob the work of the Lord from transpiring on your behalf. And the Lord says, in a sense, in the other side, if you will believe as your faith be it unto you, and, and the faith is what activates the promise and the power of God, but he says, if you don't believe, you're in a sense going to diminish and hinder your ability to be secure. Again, confidence was in faith. Confidence was not in scheming and striving through fleshly endeavors. Verse 10, he then goes on to say, and moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now, you want to talk about being very, very merciful and gracious. I mean, here's a guy who is a wicked king. He's doing lots of evil, wrong things. He's now in a real predicament. It looks like the nation is about to be conquered. The, the capital city is about to be overcome and devastated. And the Lord assures, look, it's not going to come to pass. Don't be afraid. Trust me. I, I, it's not my will for this to unfold in this way yet for the southern kingdom. I'm doing things on a bigger level than just what's going on in your life. And then God mercifully says to him, after asking him to trust him in faith, God says, I'm asking you, ask a sign from me, whatever kind you want. I'll give you an indicator to help you trust me. Now, that's very kind because other times where people in the Bible ask for a sign, they get in trouble for doing it. <laughs> and here in this situation, the Lord is actually saying, I want you to believe so much. I want you to trust me so much. I'm telling you, ask for a sign. Ask me to do something to circumstantially assure you and to prove to you, if you would, that I am going to faithfully fulfill my word. He says, ask for a sign. But A has said, verse 12, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, Ahaz, I mean, he's a very wicked man, and he's basically just acting very pious there. Oh, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And he's just kind of playing hyper-spiritual. I mean, we know he's a godless man. What he's really doing is just using spiritual talk to cover his refusal to do what's right and trust the Lord. So he says, well, you know, I don't want to ask for a sign. That would be un unspiritual. And so what he's doing is using spiritual talk to cover up his really unrepentant and wrong heart within. And I know that you've never seen anyone do that in your life, and I'm sure we've never done that. 
in our life. The truth of the matter is the reason Ahaz is saying that is because Ahaz doesn't want to trust the Lord. He wants to stick with his own carnal plan, and he wants to stay on the same path, and he wants to keep doing what he's doing and handle matters himself and pursue his own idea, and he's not willing to let the Lord take control. So he just uses some spiritual jargon as kind of a smokescreen that that's why he doesn't want to ask for a sign. But we know from the overall text and his heart condition and the other chapters of the Bible that he's just using spiritual talk. Now, verse 13, the Lord then said through the prophet Isaiah, hear now, and notice the language change, O house of David. So the Lord hears Ahaz say, I'm not asking for a sign. I'm not going to test the Lord. And the Lord sees right through, because he's not fooled by spiritual jargon, even though we may deceive one another. He sees right through and he says, you know what? I know your heart's not right, but I do care about the whole house of David. I do care about the whole nation. So now the Lord says to the whole nation, to the house of David as a whole, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So at this point now, since he didn't desire to repent, the Lord kind of graciously goes beyond Ahaz, and he speaks a word of consolation to graciously offer a sign as a promise and encouragement to notice the whole house of David. And this sign for the house of David was that the virgin, verse 14, would give birth, and it would be a display of God's power as the virgin gave birth to a particular unique son, and that son took the name or was given the name Emmanuel, which, of course, we know the name Emmanuel means God with us. Now, in the near sense... It is very likely that what took place, as we've talked about before, a lot of times prophecies, when we see them in the Old Testament, they have both a near and a far fulfillment. So sometimes something would happen initially in the present context historically, but yet what was spoken would also have a far fulfillment or the ultimate or complete fulfillment further down the road historically. So sometimes there would be a near and partial fulfillment of the prophet's word, and then there would be the ultimate complete fulfillment of something that was spoken further out down the road. And it is very likely, though honestly we don't have much in historical context, that in the near sense that likely a virgin maiden in that day became married and then gave birth to a son and perhaps gave her son the name Emmanuel as a given name, and that this became a sign to the people in that present hour that they would be saved and delivered in some way through a unique series of circumstances that gave assurance to the people of Judah in that present day. Now, what we care about most is ultimately the far and complete fulfillment of this ultimately, verse 14, we know, predicts the miraculous conception and the virgin birth Through the family line of the house of David, the greatest son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, being born through David's family bloodline to be the promised Messiah or the Savior of Israel and ultimately the Savior for all mankind. And here we get this description now, prophetically, again, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the events come to pass, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, 
where the Virgin Mary receives an angelic visit from Gabriel, and she is informed that she had found favor with God and that she was going to conceive miraculously in her womb a son without natural relations sexually with a man, and that that son was going to be the king of Israel, the Messiah, the Savior that was long awaited for, and that she is a virgin prior to having intimacy with a man or a marriage relationship would then give birth as a virgin to this son that would be the savior of the world. And again, being described here, Matthew describes it this way, Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, they, was, they were somewhat engaged, arranged to be married, before they came together, she was Notice the Bible says, found with child of the Holy Spirit. So the idea is at some point after the angel spoke to Mary, she conceives miraculously, God the Father miraculously conceives the life of his son by a miracle in her womb as a virgin young lady by the Holy Spirit coming upon her. Luke 1 describes the events that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and the power of the Most High would overshadow her and a miracle would take place. The life of the Son of God, the eternal Son, was put into her womb so that he might be born with God as his Father, being fully God and fully divine, and that Mary, as his earthly mother to his human existence, would allow him to have a human life, that he might be born uniquely, being 100% fully God and at the same time, 100% fully man, the God-man. That in a sense, God added a second nature. He added a human nature to his spiritual, eternal nature, and that Jesus came in this way through this miraculous conception and that Mary gave birth as a virgin. And it says that Joseph, not wanting to make a public example, was thinking about putting her away secretly in divorce. But while he thought about those things, Matthew says, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Notice the reminder. Joseph, did you remember you're a son of David? <laughs> you're in the line for this, Joseph. You're a son of David, and you're married now to this. You're about to marry this gal who's of the line of the son of David as well. He says, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this was done, quoting now from our passage in Isaiah, so all this was done, Matthew says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So here we get this prophetic description, a prediction, centuries in advance before Christ came into the world to live as a man and be the Savior, that he would be born through a virgin birth. And listen, you have to understand, this is doctrinally essential to our salvation. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then our salvation is dysfunctional and corrupt. Jesus had to be born of a virgin so that he might be born differently than every other human being, which is conceived by two sinful human beings, a man and a woman, from Adam's lineage, and therefore we are all born inherently with a sin nature. 
and we're born inherently dead in trespasses and sins. If Jesus was born through two biological male and female parents like every other human being, he could not have adequately been the savior for mankind. He had to be the perfect mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, where he was born of a virgin so that he could be born fully God in touch with deity, fully man in touch with humanity, but yet born in a way separately because God put the life of his son into the womb of a virgin, and as she gave birth as a virgin, Jesus was born of that virgin birth without the inherent fallen sin nature, the Adamic nature that you and I have, so that he could then live perfectly the sinless life as you and I cannot live, and then ultimately be the perfect sacrifice and mediator on our behalf. So again, please do not ever underestimate and please do not ever allow yourself to be misguided to think that this is not one of the essential doctrines of Christianity. Just as the resurrection is essential, the virgin birth of Christ is absolutely necessary and that is why he could be the savior for us that he was. And thank goodness that God, by his power, did that miracle and here allowed his son to be with us, Emmanuel, that God himself literally took on flesh and dwelt among us and then ultimately provided salvation and the forgiveness of sins for us. Well, verse 15 goes on to say, in curds and honey he shall eat, that's the diet of a common person, that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, that is to have moral distinction, discernment, the land that you dread, he says, will be forsaken by both of her kings, that is the king of Syria and the king of the northern nation of Israel. So again, this was a simple common person's diet, not one who lived in luxury, and this threat of the enemy that seemed to be intimidating that was not looking like it could be overcome, he says here that, that, that threat is going to be broken and those two kings will be non-existent and forsaken before this child ever begins to come to the age of reason. The point here being is that God was going to work powerfully to disrupt and remove their fear and the thing that was threatening them. He would be the one to take it away by his power. And verse 17 tells us, and the Lord will bring then, notice the king of Notice different now, Assyria. So this is what God was ultimately going to do. Bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. The idea is whistling, calling from a distant land, you know, come almost as if someone like, you know, just whistling for their doll. Here, boy, come on. And, and this is God's just, again, control over nations and empires that God can just, just call a nation and bring it in and cause that nation to conquer or to be a world empire. That's how much God's in control sovereignly. He would call the Assyrians from afar. They will come, verse 19, all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and the clefts of the rock and on all the thorns in the pastures. And in that same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. Now understand, that was something that was a great disgrace 
in the ancient culture. When they would conquer, to shave a man's beard, to shave a man's head, that was in a sense a way of indicating outwardly they stripped you of your masculinity. So this was just sort of a cultural thing, and that's the picture here of that they would be greatly humiliated as they were conquered by the strength of the Assyrians. And it shall be, verse 21, in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, so it shall be from the abundance of the milk that they give that he will eat curds for curds and honey. Everyone will eat who is left in the land, a picture of the land being decimated, famine setting in. There's now a lack of food as they're being conquered ultimately. And it shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines, that is what it should produce, worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will only be for briars and thorns. The crops will greatly fail. With arrows and bows, man will come there because the land will become briars and thorns. And also to any hill which could be dug with the hoe. You will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will come, or excuse me, become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. So the picture here is the land being decimated instead of prospering and flourishing, that the land, its crops would be failing, its pastures would begin to be ravaged in such a way that it will just become a place where people can't really survive well because of the lack and insufficiency, and only animals can roam and glean some of what's left. Now, what's being described here to Ahaz, in a sense, as God's causing him to, to think about this reality of, look, don't trust in your alliance with Assyria. Rely upon me. And what God is saying to him, because ultimately, unfortunately, God knows he won't trust the Lord and he'll keep his plan with Assyria, is God saying, your whole plan to rely on Assyria, it's going to backfire. Because God says the tables are going to turn. And the very people who you're making a political alliance with, thinking they're going to come in and rescue you and save you, God's saying, the tables are going to turn, and they're going to actually come in and be the ones to conquer you, and they're going to destroy you, and they're going to take away your liberty and your freedom, and that once fruitful land would become barren and desolate because God would let them suffer loss, and in a sense, what God's conveying is the very thing they were trusting in and would not let go of and just trust and rely on God, the very thing they were trusting in wrongly would eventually become the very thing that was their downfall. The thing that they thought would liberate them became the very thing that actually started then controlling them and ruling over them and became something that really brought them into bondage. You know, I find it very interesting that in verse 23 and in verse 25, there's that repeated language, he says, that wherever there could be a thousand vines, it was briars and thorns. And then again, verse 5, what could be instead is going to be, and what's God conveying? It's almost as if God's saying there the idea of ruin and loss of opportunity. God's saying, if you trust me, things could be this way, but if you don't trust me, they won't go that way. And boy, I don't ever want the Lord to have to say to me, Tony, if you would trust me, it could be like this in your life, or it could go like this in your life. But if you don't trust me, then you're going to miss the opportunity, or that's going to fail, or that's going to struggle. And the reason it will struggle will be my own unbelief, because what could have been 
didn't come to pass because of my unwillingness to put confidence in the Lord because, again, that is what God often responds to, our faith and our reliance upon him. Well, chapter 8 carries on saying, Moreover, the Lord then said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shala Hasbots. There's a name for a son if you have one in the future. Maher Shala Hasbots, which basically is a name that means speed to the spoil and hurry to the plunder which is another way of saying, come quickly and take over and take possession fast. And this is, God says, I want you to get a scroll and with a man's pen, I want you to write this down. That is like make a placard and write this big long name upon it. And I will take for myself, he says, a faithful witness to record. That is people who could testify as witnesses to what was being done. Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jerichiah. And then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. So notice, Isaiah the prophet, interestingly enough, this guy was married to a prophetess. Can you imagine that marriage? What do you want to do for dinner? I already know what you want to do for dinner. You know, the Lord put something on my heart for you. I don't care. He already told me first. I mean, imagine, imagine a prophet, and they both have this prophetic gift. Again, prophecy is not a gender-specific gift. The Bible tells us that both men and women can have the Spirit of the Lord come upon their life to speak a word for the Lord prophetically. Uh, and so the prophetess, his wife, is married to Isaiah the prophet. And it's a beautiful thing to see, both a husband and a wife. They both are those who are able to hear from the Lord and share words from the Lord to encourage and help his people. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Isaiah, call his name. Oh, not that name, Lord, really? Call his name, Maher Shalahazbats. For behold, the child shall have knowledge, before the child shall have knowledge to cry, Mother or my father, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away from before the king of Assyria. So he was to give his son this name. It was symbolic, of course, of what God was going to do as the Assyrians would quickly come in and vastly plunder and take the spoil from people that they were conquering among the nations. And, and perhaps, I don't know, Isaiah does this in faith at first. He writes the placard down. And then in the natural set of normal circumstances, he and his wife conceive a child. And as their next child is, in a sense, about to be born, God says, remember that thing I told you to write? I actually want that to be the name of your son because it has spiritual significance, and, and he's to name his son this. And in the midst of everyday affairs, he's about to have their second son now. He's instructed to give his child this name, and you realize the exact timing of this child's birth was for a set purpose in human history. So again, God's ruling over all affairs, world affairs, personal affairs. He's making no mistakes in the process. And God says, before this child even can say mama or papa, this event is going to take place. And this child's life specifically was to fulfill a set purpose. And God knew that. And so God was orchestrating these events for very purposeful reasons, controlling all that was going on. Verse 5, and the Lord spoke to me again, saying, inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly. Now, that was like a stream in the area of Jerusalem, just a, a simple, natural stream. 
And he says, they've refused my provision in that way, and they rejoice in resin and Ramalia's son. That's a reference to, to Pekah. So he says, because the people have refused my simple provision, he illustrates it like this simple, slow-flowing stream. It was very simple and generic. And he says, they didn't want my simple plan. They didn't want to just simply trust in me and just simply yield, like taking a drink from this stream that would provide regular quenching of their thirst and would sustain them because they didn't want my simple plan set before them, because they weren't willing to let me do things my way, but they've refused my way of working. Now, verse 7, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them he draws a different contrast, the waters of the river, strong and mighty. So because they didn't want my simple plan to just simply trust, yield to me, drink of what I'm going to do, and let it be simple, and I'll resolve your situation, God says, because of that, you refuse that, and now you're going to suffer the consequence, and that's going to be like a, a mighty flooded river overflowing its banks. He now pictures the Assyrians in this way. Again, where Assyria was, was where the great Euphrates and the Tigris, these massive strong rivers were. And they will come strong and mighty, verse seven, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he will go over all his channels and over all his banks. And he will pass through Judah and overflow and pass over and reach up to the neck, stretching out his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Interesting, O God with us. God sort of subtly reminds them that he's with them even though they have refused his help and his provision the way that he wanted to work. Now notice, the threat here is that when the Assyrians came, and they would, they would come and bring great devastation. They conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and then they came into the southern kingdom of Judah, and we read the studies in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and they brought great damage to the southern kingdom of Judah. They almost conquered Judah as well. It was only by the miraculous intervention of the Lord because Judah still had more time as a nation that God ultimately pushed away the, the Assyrians and let the people in Judah have a few more kings in a few more years, and then ultimately Babylon would come and conquer them and take them into captivity but notice, they would come and bring great devastation like a river overflowing its banks, just flooding and bringing great damage throughout passing through the land of Judah. He says, it, it would be like they found themselves like with a flood coming up to the neck. <laughs> the idea is they're, they're all, they came that close to drowning, that, that they would come that close to being destroyed. But verse 9, the Lord's intervention, be shattered, O you peoples, and broken in pieces, Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves. God says, go ahead, you Assyrians. You're still under my control. Put on your armor, but you're going to be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. And here's why. The only reason, see verse 10, for God is with us. The only reason Judah survived the Assyrian attempt to destroy them after they conquered the northern kingdom was not because they deserved it. They weren't even trusting the Lord, and they weren't even doing what was right. They were sinning just like their northern brothers and sisters up in Israel were, but the distinction was 
the hand of God and the presence of God was with them, and in his kindness and mercy, he spared them for his greater purposes and for his unique plan. Again, what was a part of the southern kingdom of Judah? The messianic line. And God wasn't going to cut off his nose despite his face. And so God says to these nations, to the Assyrians, listen, you may be conquering every other nation. You can come in with all your battles and your armament gear and everything, he says. But everything that you bring, he says, I'll break your power in an instant. And God says, you can come up with all your plans. Meet together, he says. Have all your board meetings. Counsel together. Consult. Come up with your greatest plans. God says, it will come to nothing. God says, speak your word. Give me all your ideas. You're going to do this. I'm going to do that. And God says, I don't care what you say you're going to do. God says, because I'll override you because I have a greater plan. I have a sovereign purpose. And how wonderful to see that despite what goes on at times where there may be resistance and people who seek to work in opposition to the things of the Lord, that one can stand on that ground, but God is with us. And that's the only reason we ever stand and have any stability in our life, because of the presence of God with us. And God here wanted his people to realize this is what your confidence should be in, not in your scheme and your ideas. Your confidence should be in the fact that I am with you. Again, what does the Bible tell us in Romans 8? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's the thing that we want to rely on more than anything. If God is with you, if God is with us, then God's going to take care of things. And our job is to rely upon the Lord, to let God go to battle. What did the Bible tell us in the days of David? For the battle belongs to the Lord. And we rest in that reality. So verse 11, the Lord spoke to me, Isaiah says again, with a strong hand. The idea is God was moving me in a strong direction. And he instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. In other words, I should not behave like others around me are behaving. I shouldn't conform to the patterns of the world. Isaiah, don't do that. You're my prophet. I don't care how people in the world do things. You don't behave like people in the world. You're my servant. You're a child of God. You're my representative. Do not walk in the way of this people, he said, saying, do not say a conspiracy, a conspiracy, treason. There were people always coming up with conspiracy theories, right? Concerning all these people, call a conspiracy. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. For the Lord of hosts, him you shall hollow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So God says to his people here, listen, I don't want you living in a spirit of fear like everyone else does. Oh, this, this new conspiracy theory and that, and did you hear this and this rumor? And, and, and God says, listen. Shut off the noise. You don't live like everybody else in the world. God says you don't live in fear and anxiety and threat and fret like everybody else does. He says don't be afraid of what people are saying or the trouble people are causing. He says you should hollow and honor me. And he says, to Isaiah says to the people, fear the Lord. That's who you should fear. And you know what? That is a word, really, that we all need to remember from time to time because too often we make the greatest mistakes in our lives when we are driven by fears of pressures of things that people around us are saying to us or people around us are doing, and we allow ourselves in a spirit of fear to act impulsively or not to trust the Lord or to move in a direction or to act in a certain way, 
And what we are being driven by is we're being driven by fear. We're being driven by self-preservation and fear and worry and concern. And God says, listen, the fear of man is a snare. He who trusts the Lord is safe. And the way that we need to live our lives, if we want to fear anybody, what we should fear is we should fear the Lord, not in the sense of dreading the Lord, oh my, but fearing the Lord in the sense of, Lord, I am terrified to not do your will. That scares me more than anything, Lord. What scares me more than anything is I do not want to be outside of your will. I don't care what anyone else says. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I just want to honor you, and I'm afraid to displease you. I'm afraid to step outside of your will because we realize the greatest thing to do and the safest place to be is where? In the center of the will of the Lord. And so Isaiah says, listen, let the Lord be your fear. He will be, verse 14, as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and they shall fear and be broken and be snared and taken. So he describes how not trusting the Lord as our rock and as our stability, that because Judah would not do that, and they didn't trust the Lord to be their sanctuary, their safe place, that the Lord would be their protection and their preservation, he says what will happen is that he will end up becoming a stumbling and a rock of offense to the people because they will stumble in their unbelief and not trusting the Lord and of course, as we look at those verses there again, another prophetic inference we know in Romans chapter 9 and 1 Peter chapter 2, that these very verses are quoted by both Paul and Peter in regards to our Lord Jesus Christ becoming, as we know, that cornerstone, the foundation stone of God's plan of salvation, and that those who do not trust Jesus, he becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And again, we can either be broken by that rock and have a broken and contrite spirit and trust in Christ, and our life can be built upon the rock and the foundation of Jesus Christ's salvation, or Jesus, like he did to many of the Jews when he came, he can become a stumbling block because we choose not to believe. And he can become an offense to many who hear of the claims of Jesus and to the Jews, both Paul and Peter described how Jesus can become exactly what's described here, that rock of offense, that they stumble over who Jesus is because they refuse to believe. Isaiah's word of counsel to them, he says, here's your survival, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Do you see what Isaiah says as he gives a word to the people to encourage them? He says, look, this is going to be the connection to your survival. He says, verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal the law of my disciples. In other words, their survival was dependent. Again, what are disciples? They're committed learners. And he says, if you want to remain a committed learner of God, then you have to be willing to bind up and to seal the word of God as the thing that would be the main governing influence over your life. And so here, it's almost as if you hear the prophet speaking the word of the Lord, saying, listen, whatever it requires in your life to preserve the truth of God's word and to live by its instruction, 
and to let it govern your heart and regulate your mind and direct your decisions and govern your paths, whatever that takes, he says, that will be the main thing that will keep you safe in the midst of troubling times. For he says, I will wait on the Lord. Again, God's people have to learn to wait on the Lord and not act in fear. We have to learn to wait on the Lord and not quickly be responsive impulsively to things because we are not giving God time to act. And that's why Isaiah says, I will hope in him. Again, that's where our confidence is. Our confidence has to be hoping in him. And, and, and perhaps right now in your life, you find yourself facing a situation and so many a times we find ourselves having to determine in a given situation, what am I going to do here? Am I going to try and work this out and resolve this in my flesh, in my own striving? And a lot of times I tell you, when I'm doing that or when you're doing that, what that is, it's just human insecurity. It's human insecurity thinking that I need to play God in my life or that you need to play God and take control of the situation. When what we need to do is know what the word of God says and let that be the seal over our heart to bind it in our mind and over our heart and say, you know what, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And I am gonna wait on the Lord and I'm gonna hope in the Lord and I'm gonna give God a chance to work. And you get to see the wonderful benefits of trusting the Lord in faith and here's what's better, you get to avoid the mistakes and the regrets of when unbelief governs us to do what's wrong, and then things fall apart because of our unbelief. Let's stand together and we'll pray. We'll conclude there. It's a fair breaking point to carrying into chapter 9 next week. Father, thank you.